0: Well, if you have been uh, engaged in the one year Bible reading program, you know that every day you have a proverb or two uh, to read. And so, as a couple of months ago, as I was thinking about uh, the passages to select to preach throughout uh, this year, I decided I'd like to preach uh, at some point on proverbs, but I could never really could land on an individual one to preach from, so a number of weeks ago I decided that I would just do an overview of the book of Proverbs on some week, and that's this week, Uh, and so I'm not going to be looking at the Proverbs that we've read throughout the week, but I am going to read them, just as a reminder, and as a reminder that the genre is very different. Um, This is not to be read in a linear way. Now, you you can make a good case that there are structures in the book thematically. We're supposed to read a group of Proverbs together. They sort of, There's sometimes oscillating flows, and that's true. But a lot of times they're just sort of pithy sayings that are given to you to sort of kickstart start your own thinking. You're supposed to work through it on your own. You're not supposed to read it fast. If, if you read the book of Proverbs fast, you're not reading it properly. So as a reminder, these are Proverbs from this week. This is the Word of God. You can just listen as I read. Take the garment of one who puts up security for a stranger, hold it in pledge if it is done for an outsider. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever protects their master will be honored. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. Though you grind a fool in a mortar, grinding them like grain with a pestle, you will not remove their folly from them. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. For riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. When the hay is removed, a new growth appears, and the grass from the hills is gathered in. The lambs will provide you with clothing, and the goats at the price of a field. You will have plenty of goat's milk to feed your family and to nourish your female servants. That's just fairly obvious going Uh, through that section, that there, there really isn't a a lot of sort of rhyme or reason, uh, to the order of these things. But one of the things that we need to do with the book of Proverbs is we need to sort of work not chapter by chapter, but it's one of the very, one of the only books we actually do need to work thematically. So there's a lot of information about similar topics just sort of scattered throughout the book. And again, sometimes there are hooks, sometimes there are things that will allow you to see a bit of a pattern, but often it's just sort of random sayings scattered about, helpful things to think about, things to consider, things that you need to decide how you're going to apply uh, in your own life at the right time. So before we look uh, at the book, before we take a broad overview of it, let's bow together in prayer. Our Lord, you are uh, the one who gives wisdom, and so we ask that you will provide us uh, with it this morning, that by your Holy Spirit, uh, through your Word, you will teach us what we need to know, that you will show us how to live, show us how to respond to your Word. Uh, There are just so many things in life that we are uncertain of. There are so many things that we do not know uh, what we ought to do what we ought not to do. And so we look to you, Lord, for supernatural guidance. We ask that you will be our teacher, that you will teach us, Lord, uh, not just content, but teach us also obedience, teach us how to live. Lord, uh, for all those who are gathered here today uh, who are rejoicing, we praise you for that. Uh, Lord, for those who are gathered here this morning with heavy hearts, we pray that you will minister to them, that you will touch them. Uh, In the deepest recesses of their being, you will strengthen them, uh, impart life to them. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will shed your light abroad into dark places. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will, for those who are mourning, I pray that you will turn uh, mourning to joy. I pray that you will do this, Uh, that by your Spirit you will bring a revival amongst your people, change us from the inside out, help us to know you. Lord, whatever our, our circumstances are that, we, that, that bring us here to this place, we know that you are able to meet us wherever we are. And so we ask that you will meet us now. Uh, we Thank you. You have already met with us. You have already enabled us to worship your name. Help us now to worship you through your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're uh, familiar with the book at all, uh, you know that uh, chapters 1 through 9 are very different from chapters 10 through 30. is a little bit different, again. Uh, but the first nine chapters deal with more extended block discourses on various themes. Then you hit chapter 10 through 30, and you're dealing a lot with, again, these, just sort of these short, pithy sayings, or these proverbs from which the book derives its name. So as you read through the book, there are times when you read discourse, often the discourse is cast in terms of uh, a father and a son, you know, the father basically putting his arm around his son, standing out on the balcony, and just sort of looking at life. That's really what Proverbs is. Proverbs is a book that just, just, it just looks at life. Come with me on a tour, let me point things out to you, that's obviously foolish, that obviously leads to success. That leads to destruction. Just pay attention, look around you, see what works, see what doesn't. But it's not crassly pragmatic. It's see what works and see what doesn't in accordance with the covenant law of God. So the covenant law is the framework that's assumed in the text. It's not worldly wisdom. It's not sort of real politic. It's not about how to get ahead or just to get your way, how to be successful, to make friends and influence people or whatever. It's about how to actually organize your life in ways that God will deem successful. And, and if and if God deems it success, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, what your bank account is. It, it doesn't matter sort of some of the things that you have to endure. Uh, if God looks at your life and says that's a life marked by wisdom. And that's really all that matters. It's God's evaluation, not the metrics of the world. In fact, one of the things that you learn in Proverbs, uh, and certainly more so in the Prophets, is that the world can rate someone's life as being highly successful, and yet in God's perspective, they're a fool. their, Their life hasn't amounted to anything of value whatsoever. Now, Proverbs are not to be taken as case law. This is very important. So in the Old Testament law, we are given unbreakable restrictions. The book of Proverbs isn't like that. Yes, the book of Proverbs will tell you some things that are universally true, true at all times and all places. But there are also an enormous number of Proverbs which are just general rules of thumb. They don't apply in every single circumstance. And when the book is taken... As if everything that it says applies in every single circumstance, then we will create an enormous amount of false guilt in a lot of people for a variety of things. One of which is this. The book will tell us, famously, to train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're older they will not depart from it. And this has been applied with a strict literalism to basically say to parents whose children are are not walking with the Lord, if you had done your job properly, they would not have departed from this way. Therefore, the fact that your children are not walking with the Lord is proof that somehow as a parent you have failed. Now, it's not usually cast quite that crassly, but that's the idea. The question is, is that a fair reading of the genre of the book? And the answer is no. These are not promises that apply in every circumstance. These are wisdom sayings that are generally true. Generally true. But which admit all kinds of exceptions in all kinds of circumstances. Uh, if you don't hold to that, there's a sort of this, this Locus classicus, or this classic location where the book contains a direct contradiction with two Proverbs that are put right next to each other, if you're reading it as literal law. That is in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. You don't need to turn there. Trust me, I'll tell you what it says. It says this, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. So do not answer a fool according to their folly. So when someone's being foolish, what do you not do Well, you don't answer them? Just let them talk. And I think sometimes, honestly, and, and, and when you're not responding to a fool, they will often be even more upset about it, but sometimes when someone is being foolish, the best thing to do is just keep your mouth shut and let them talk. Let them be a fool. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer. Or you yourself will be him. In other words, there are some times when people are engaging with you in such a way that to respond is just to bring yourself immediately into that sphere of folly. Nothing's going to be accomplished. Nothing productive is going to be done here. The the whole pitch and tenor and content of what's being said is absolutely foolish, and so to try to engage in that just makes you a fool too. So do not answer a fool according to their folly, or you'll be just like them. It's very clear. The very next verse says this, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Now, what you don't find in the law is something like, do not commit murder, go ahead and commit murder, right? Uh, so clearly this is not law. Uh, Clearly, something else that's going on here in terms of genre. You have a contradictory statement, or a a, a prima facie, a contradictory statement, but the verses are located immediately together. So either the editor of this book is a first-class dope who can't remember what he just said and puts a contradiction right afterwards, or this is a clue that the book is supposed to be read in a particular way. There are times... When you just must not engage a fool, just let them be a fool. If you engage with them, you're going to be reduced to their level. It's going to be futile. It's literally a waste of your breath. Just take it. Just take it. But there are other times when someone's folly will hurt other people. And there are times when, if a fool is airing their opinions, and you can see that their folly is starting to affect others, there's times to say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not quite true. That's not quite accurate. No, that's wrong. In other words, there's a time to stand up for truth. Also, there's a time where some people are just rabbiting on about whatever. They're broadcasting their folly. And if no one says anything, then they will think that they're irrefutable. You know, they'll be so filled with their own wisdom, they'll be so filled with their own pride. Oh, I, you know, I, I was there and I was talking and, and no one could refute me. And so then they walk off just confirmed in their arrogance. They walk off confirmed in their folly. So for that reason, or he will be wise in his own eyes, Is that there's also a time to say, now look, you know, that, you know, knock it off. That's not right, because if you don't, if you don't provide some correction, the person will go off thinking that they can't be corrected, that they're speaking what's true. And if what they're speaking is actual folly, then it's dangerous. They need correction for their own good and for the good of other people. So, Proverbs needs to be read that way, then. It requires sensitivity to context. Sometimes, it's like Ecclesiastes, there's a time to speak, there's a time to be silent. There's a time for love, there's a time for hate, there's a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. There's all of these different times. And of course, in Ecclesiastes, the terrible thing is that we don't know what the time is. We're always getting the time wrong. You know, God makes everything beautiful in his time. He said he turned in the hearts of man, but we cannot fathom what he has done from one end to the other. It's a burden that God has placed on us. It's a burden to know there's a right time for various things, but we're always getting the time wrong. The book of Proverbs is the positive side of the wisdom tradition. Ecclesiastes gives you the cynical view. Proverbs gives you the positive view. Yes, there's a right time for these things. Learn how to apply them. Which is why the book will also tell you that um, a proverb in the mouth of a fool is sort of like like sending a message by a lame beggar. You you, You can't get anywhere. So you can recite these things but you need to write, you need to cite the right proverb at the right time in the right context, or it doesn't work. If it can backfire. I mean, heaven help us when we're supposed to engage the fool and we don't. Or when we're not supposed to. And Jesus says, Jesus says exactly the same thing, interestingly enough, put in different language. Jesus says, do not cast your pearl before swine. In other words, Jesus says, listen, there's a time. When even though you're something as precious as the gospel, don't bother throwing it out there because all the people are going to do is mock and turn and tear you. They'll trample you down. So learn, there's a time, even in the gospel proclamation, to be quiet. Do not cast your pearl before swine. But how often do we not cast a pearl before those who could benefit from it? I mean, how often do we get the time wrong? So the book of Proverbs, is again, it's running on these lines. You need wisdom to apply the book in the first place. This is one of the difficult things uh, that people have recognized all through history, in terms of philosophy and wisdom. How do you begin to grow wise if you're not? Where do you start? I mean, if you have to be wise to apply wisdom literature, how do you even begin How do you begin to grow in wisdom? How do you start? Where do you begin? Well, one place would be with a book of wisdom like Proverbs in the first chapter at the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Let me read this. This is the Word of God. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For gaining wisdom and instruction. For understanding words of insight. For receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. For giving prudence to those who are simple knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. So this, this is telling you right from the very beginning. Listen. This is what I am for. This book is pleading with you. Listen to me. I exist as a book so you can gain wisdom and instruction. That's why I'm here. That's, that's my reason for existence. I exist... So you can understand words of insight. I exist so you can learn how to live prudently. I exist so you can learn what's right and just and fair. That's the reason I exist. Now the book can't make you want those things. The book can't make you want to live in a way which is right and just and fair. The book can't make you want to be wise. It can't make you want to understand. If you don't want to understand, if you don't want to learn, if you don't want to grow, this book will do absolutely nothing for you. And some of us, maybe we, 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 when's the last time we've read it? It exists to help in these things. But it can't make you want any of these things. Knowledge and discretion to the young. There is an emphasis in the book on training the young, training people while they're still while they they can still be sort of molded while they're still pliable. Uh, The reality is, I I don't know if this is true historically in culture. I don't know if this is true in a lot of cultures around the world, but certainly, certainly in our culture. it seems like as much as the older generations uh, think that the younger generations are always like the worst generation that's ever lived on the face of the earth, uh, and that is true historically. Actually, you can read, you read phenomenal quotations you know, about uh, how lazy the young people are And how, you know, entitled they are, and how undisciplined they are, and how spoiled they are, and how, you know, they've had such an easy life compared to their parents and grandparents. You can read all these kind of quotations. You go, oh my goodness, that sounds like today. Except it's actually people who are, you know, the pre-Socratic philosophers. You know, there's people in ancient Greece, people in ancient Rome, people all over the world for thousands of years have been saying, oh, this younger generation has it so easy compared to me. You know, no, no self-centeredness or self-righteousness there, you know, uh, across the world. Yeah. So as much as the older generation tend to dump on the young people a lot, one of the things, I, you know, I want to say is it seems to me that it's actually a lot of times the younger people who are the only ones who are still interested in learning and growing and, and, and thriving in terms of intellectual pursuit. It's like once somehow you stop being young and, and you know, you, 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 you go get a job and you don't care about learning anymore. So the book of Proverbs can't make you want to learn. It just can't. They're, 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 you can't. But if you want to, if you want to grow, hey, here, here's a book for you. This will help you if you want it. But not just the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Which means that even the, even the greatest sage can still grow. Even, I know you won't believe this, Sam McCallum, even Sam McCallum can add to his learning. He can add to his knowledge. I, I would dare say, this, this seems almost impossible, he can even add to his wisdom, as great as it is, let the wise listen and add to their learning. We can all grow. And, and that's one of the things that, that's always heartening. No matter where you are in this spectrum, you can grow. But growth is never automatic. Part of our problem in our society, certainly in our society, is we're so focused on instant gratification that we won't put in the hard work which will only pay dividends years down the road. If it won't pay dividends in the next two minutes, we don't do it. But the most important thing in terms of productivity and actually having a life that counts for things is take that long-term perspective. What do I do today which will set up productivity years down the road. A long journey with single-minded obedience and discipline, step-by-step, step, day after day after day after day. It doesn't even recognize it in the corporate world. Stephen Covey, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I know it's a bit of a dated book now. Um, but you know, one, one, of his, one of the things I remember from reading that book a number of years ago, and you might wonder, my goodness, how could you have read that book and be so remarkably ineffective today? Well, I didn't pay attention. That's what happened. Uh, but I did read it, and one of things I do remember in it is, you know, he has his, his four quadrants uh, that you should live in, in terms of uh, details and tasks and things that clamor for your attention. And, you know, there's a quadrant of things that are, are urgent, you know, and unimportant. That's like when people are interrupting you all the time with all their little crises, and it's just like it's just it's like when Sam comes to my office three hundred times a day, and it's like okay, this is urgent, but it's not important. Can this wait? Can we do this another time? Uh, and then there's things that are important uh, and urgent. You know, you get a phone call, someone's in the hospital. Okay, you, you got to go. You got to got to drop everything and go. Right? Uh, there are things that are unimportant and not urgent, and that's the worst quadrant of all, where we spend most of our time. Uh, things like computer games, probably 99.99% of every text message that's ever been sent. Uh, you know, these things, that they just they clamor for attention right now, like there was a ping, like right now, and then you fracture your attention and concentration, and, and you, you just deal with what's not important, it's just trivial, but it's it's immediate. He it says, the most effective people live in, live in, I believe it was Quadrant 2, someone you may remember, I think it's Quadrant 2, it doesn't matter, it's one of the Quadrants where, it's either one through four. I do remember that. Uh, And and it's um, things that aren't urgent, but they're important. The things that you don't need to do today. For today, it would actually be irrelevant if you tackled this project at all. If you spent no time on this today, it wouldn't matter. But if you spend time on it today, and tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after, not because it's ever urgent, but because it's important. In the end, it's those sorts of activities that actually produce the most. Those are the most effective time, types of projects to engage in. That's the most effective type of thing to dedicate your life to. So did it have to be done this afternoon? No but five years of doing important things that didn't need to be done today for instant gratification can produce something pretty phenomenal down the road. But that requires discipline. The book of Proverbs says, look, you want to grow? You want to learn? Don't think spending an afternoon reading a chapter of the book of Proverbs and really thinking about it is going to be exciting today. But just wait. Just wait. You have to remove stones from the field. You need to plow the field. You need to plant. You need to weed. You need to water. The harvest comes after a lot of hard work, but the harvest comes. Give it time, but don't be lazy. The book of Proverbs has an awful lot to say about hard work and laziness, actually. And ironically... Because those who are lazy will never read the book. right? Uh, It's kind of a little bit difficult that way. So how do you start? Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the climax of the prologue. And it tells you, look, you, you want to start being wise? It doesn't begin with intelligence. In fact, there are lots of people, and I do not say this pejoratively, I, I, this is not, it is, I, I say this because it's literally true. There are an enormous number of people in the world with advanced education, you know, in, in our context, we say that, you know, there's a lot of people in the world with a PhD who are very smart, but in a biblical analysis, they're a fool. Because folly has to do with rebelling or dismissing what, rebelling against God or dismissing what God is—that She's not taking God seriously. It doesn't matter how smart you are, if you don't take God seriously, in the final analysis, you are a fool, biblically speaking. It's nothing to do with intelligence. So you can also have people who are utterly illiterate, who are wise beyond all get out. That's so weird. I don't usually talk that way. All get out. I don't know where that came from. Uh, they're really wise. And they're extremely wise beyond all get out. You know, that's, how, that's how wise those people are. Um, but it's true. You know, you, It's not about education. It's not about IQ. It's about walking with God. Taking God seriously. You want to be wise, that's where you start. Begin to take God seriously. One of the ways you can tell if you take God seriously is if you take his word seriously. Do you spend time in his word? It's hard to argue you really take God seriously if you're routinely just neglecting what he says. So this is a call to enter into the book. This is a call not to forsake God's wisdom. You want to be wise? You start by fearing God. Because if you fear God, you'll start to do the work that's required to grow and gain in wisdom. Now, look at uh, verse 20 of chapter 1. This is wisdom personified. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. So what you're being told here is that God's wisdom is everywhere. God's wisdom is not hidden away. God's wisdom is, is speaking out in the most public arena. High up on the wall, addressing everyone passing through the gate. This is this is the person who you can't escape. you come into the city, God's wisdom is crying out to you. And What she's saying. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke. Then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. In other words, you you see this whole society, this whole mass of people streaming into the city. and, And they're mockers and simpletons and fools. They want nothing to do with God. And wisdom is trying to get their attention. Hey, look over here. How long are you going to be living like that? Look what I offer you. Repent. Turn away from this foolish way of living. I'll teach you if you want to be taught. But since you refuse to listen when I call and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. That's the point. That's your contrast. The prologue ends by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom is calling out to everyone going by, forsake your evil ways, forsake this lifestyle that rejects God. Let me teach you, but if you won't, it seems almost kind of a little bit, little bit nasty here. I'm going to mock you and calamity overtakes you. Oh, that's, I mean, I she's, she's, she's wisdom, not grace, right? Well, how's this? You remember Psalm 2. All the nations conspire against the Lord. He who sits on Zion laughs. Then he rebukes them in his wrath, terrifies them in his anger, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, when people want to mock God, which is what the fools and the mockers and the scoffers are doing. When people mock God, they will be mocked in the end. Their mockery sort of rebounds onto themselves, onto their own heads. They're culpable for it. God gets the last laugh. All all these people who who want to preen their feathers and walk around with their pretensions and and live their life their way in total disregard for God, spurning wisdom's call. In the end, they'll reap what they sow. In the end, they'll receive what they've given. So wisdom calls out. The contrast in in chapter 1 establishes the parameters of the book, just like Psalm 1 and 2 establishes the parameters of the book of Psalms. You will either submit to the Lord's will and his king or you and be blessed, Psalms, or you'll go in with the wicked and you'll be destroyed. Proverbs. You will either fear the Lord and grow in knowledge, or you'll reject the knowledge and wisdom of God and be destroyed. These are the exact same opening lines, really thematically. Psalms and Proverbs. So you think that. That's what you need to have in mind as you engage the material of the book. Now the question then is, well, how valuable is wisdom? And you're told in chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. Blessed are those who find wisdom. Now, you've just read chapter 1, right? I mean, you're, I mean, you're supposed to have just read chapter 1. This is terrible. You're also supposed to have read chapter 2 and the first 12 verses of chapter 3. You're not supposed to just jump here to verse 13. But nonetheless, you've already read chapter 1. Where is wisdom in chapter 1? This is a question. Just to make sure you're paying attention. W- where is wisdom in chapter 1? We just talked about it. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah, good answer. You know, wisdom's everywhere. Wisdom's calling out. So then verse 13, blessed are those who find wisdom. Like It's not hard. Okay? <laughs> like this isn't a tough thing. Wisdom is calling out to you. Like <laughs> Wisdom is coming to you. Blessed are those who find wisdom. This is the easy part in the book. Those who gain understanding. Why? For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. If money stood at the entrance to the city and called out, hey, all of you who want $10,000 come over here. How many people would neglect her? I know you might think it's too good to be true or some kind of scheme and all the rest, but let's say it was real. Let's say money personified just stood at the entrance to the city of Guelph and was calling out to you, hey, $10,000 for anyone who wants it. Be honest. How many of you would not be stopping off to see lady money on the way home, no matter how far it was out of your way? $10,000. I mean, I'd, 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 I'd drive back to Barrie where I was <laughs> yesterday in a snowstorm. I, for that, it's, it's worth it, you know. Uh, maybe maybe ten. That might be low for that experience. Maybe twenty. But uh, you know, you 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 do it. You you would do anything. I mean, that kind of money. You you've you got an ATM in your in your house, and every day you you know just just free money. It's every morning you got to get go up. You get to get up. Throw your bank card in there. Five thousand dollars cash is going to come out. How many days would you go without using that ATM? I don't know. I you know it's it's it's, it's been probably. I, I I used it last Sunday, but you know, at home Monday through Saturday, really? like I, I don't need that. I, mean, I don't have time for that. I don't need that $30,000. How many of us would live our lives that way? How many of us wouldn't access $100 bucks every day if, if, if we could get that? Better than silver, better than gold, better than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare. And wisdom cries out to you, come and learn. I'm better than gold. And the world says, "Yeah, thanks. That's, that's all right. You're, you're, you're not better than Facebook. You're, you're, not, you're not better than than multiple hours of, of sports on TV. You're, you're 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 not better than whatever." You're not better than pursuing another buck. Yeah, okay. And, and wisdom cries out. Wisdom holds herself out. Wisdom says, I am better for you than anything this world has to offer. And she's forsaken and neglected. And people go carrying on for all the things they want. And in the end, they realize that they have Nothing how many of us are wise enough already? Well, none of us are. One of the great promises, probably something, I, I believe I've probably, I've likely prayed this verse more than any other verse. James chapter 1, verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask God, who gives generously to all without finding faults. In other words, you know, this, that's one of the, I love that verse because it legitimizes one thing. It legitimizes coming to God and saying, you know what? I'm not that wise. I need help. You ask for wisdom because you need wisdom. I don't know what to do. I'm not sufficient. I'm not enough. Help me. God, you are the source of wisdom. Help me. And he gives generously to all. Without finding fault. Which means what God doesn't do is say, well, you know, my goodness, you are lacking in wisdom. You're not very bright. He says, oh, you want wisdom? Here you are. Now, how does God dispense wisdom? It's not some sort of mystical thing. It's that his spirit, if we ask God for wisdom, his spirit will guide us in accordance with the right application of his word. Wisdom is not some sort of mystical, religious, philosophical tradition. Wisdom is in the Word of God. And how do we understand the Word of God? We understand the Word of God by the Spirit of God. And so when we ask, God, give me wisdom, it's not like he's going to beam the book of Proverbs into your head. Like, it's not going to be downloaded in there. You're not going to say, Lord, I need wisdom. And then you will wake up and go, oh my goodness, I have the book of Proverbs memorized. It doesn't work that way. What you're going to do is you're going to ask God for wisdom. Then you're going to start reading His Word, and you'll find that His Spirit applies the Word and helps you understand the Word and helps you live out the Word. That's how you become wise. You fear God, look to Him by the Spirit through the Word of God. It's Nothing mystical, nothing magical. Like sometimes I think you know part of our problem is we want everything to be sort of esoteric. But lots of things are just pretty normal, you know. And lots of things are just it's it's reading. It's actually like opening up the book and paying attention to it. And praying for God's help. That's it. It's not that hard. Because don't forget, wisdom's pursuing you. Wisdom's calling out to you. Wisdom wants you. So really the only question is, do you want her? Do you want to be wise? Because if you do, God stands ready to make you wise. And wisdom calls out. But remember this, too. God's wisdom can be awfully counterintuitive. We establish our religious, ethical systems. Kierkegaard, in mean, different contexts, but Kierkegaard had some insight here. We have our, our neat parameters of how everything wants to be. And then sometimes God just blows that system up. Sometimes God leads you on. In ways that the world couldn't possibly understand. So Paul will say in First Corinthians, Do you know the wisdom of God is utter foolishness in the eyes of the world? Do you think God's greatest wisdom is displayed at the cross? The crucifixion of his son? The murder of the Messiah? The death of the Son of God incarnate? Weakness, shame, humiliation? Do you know that that's the pinnacle of the wisdom of God? And the entire world looks on and says, that is a ludicrous, shameful thing. How could anyone worship someone who died that way? The stumbling block to the Jews because to be crucified was to die under the curse of God. The Messiah doesn't die under the curse of God. The crucifixion clearly disqualifies Jesus from being the Messiah. And the Greeks say, my goodness, anyone who dies that way, as sort of a a rebel outcast, they're the lowest of the low, they're the dregs of society. Who's going to worship that person? And the wisdom of God splits right through all the cultural analysis. The Jews write off Jesus. The Gentiles write off Jesus. There's no one left. There's only Jews and Gentiles in the world. And everyone thinks this is folly. Except somehow through this foolishness. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, Paul says. And both Jew and Gentile begin to be pulled into this saving stream of redemption in Jesus Christ. They get pulled into the foolishness of God. And in the foolishness of God discover a wisdom that's wiser than anything else in all of the world. Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge Paul tells us in Colossians are found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is also the fulfillment of Proverbs. He was always wise... Always lived and did everything that pleased the Father. But all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Which means if you want to be wise, you have to start with fearing the Lord. But But the only way you can truly and properly fear the Lord is by acknowledging His Son, Jesus Christ. To put your faith in Jesus Christ. To recognize it is impossible to be wise apart from walking with Jesus. He is wisdom incarnate. This is wisdom personified. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. The truth is probably in this room there are probably a lot of people who have to make a lot of difficult decisions about a lot of various things. And you want to look at the Bible and you want that clear instruction. Sometimes sometimes the clear instruction is not there. Sometimes you just want a really clear law do or do not do this, and you want Revelation 23, you know, the appendix, the personalized version that says, you know what, uh, you know, Steve, on, on December 14th, I want you to do this in the afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for that kind of guidance. Like, thank you for making it clear. And yet sometimes, oh, right, well, sometimes. Sometimes that doesn't happen. No, that never happens. There's never Revelation 23. That does not happen. Uh, you know, oh, there's never a Revelation 23. would be like oh, far too much, be like extra Revelation to all get out or something. Uh, no Revelation 23. There are big structures in Scripture that are clear. There's also lots of things that it's gray. There's pros and cons. You don't know. You just don't know what to do. That's where you need wisdom. That's where you need that, that fine grain, that, that fine strainer that that can, lots of things can slip through the law, but, but wisdom is that fine mesh, that grid which allows you to keep out the, the, the sediment. And so you just pray, Lord, help us to be wise. Help me to be wise. Give me wisdom. I don't know what to do. And he does. And it might not be what anyone thinks you ought to do. But you're responsible to fear God. To honor him. The whole world may look and laugh and mock. It may be what, in a worldly perspective, is the most foolish Thing you could ever do. But wisdom does not start with a fear of the world. Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. And so we commit ourselves to Him. We do what He asks us to do. And you trust. It's going to be better than rubies. It's going to be better than gold. Because the Lord is not going to mislead us in these things. Well, may God help us to be wise. May God help us to make good decisions in life, to benefit from his word, and in being wise, then, to also be a blessing to others. That's another huge part of this book we haven't talked about. We've been too individualistic. One of the reasons that you want to be wise is to be a blessing to the community. Uh, a fool tears community apart, uh, but a wise person brings it together. I'm not our sure musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.